you've ever seen the 1999 film The Sixth Sense, uh, you may recall that Bruce Willis plays in that film a psychologist named Malcolm Crowe, who is treating a young boy tormented by visions of the dead. Crow treats his patient with compassion, uh, believing these visions to be hallucinatory. But in the meantime, Crow is struggling with his own issues and problems, including a growing distance between himself and his wife ever since he was almost killed by an intruder. As the story unfolds, it all makes perfect sense to the audience, but then it takes a completely new meaning at the very end. Now, if you've never seen The Sixth Sense, I'm about to totally ruin it for you, but you've had 25 years to watch it, so I don't feel that bad about this, because at the very end, we discover that Crow himself is dead. He didn't almost get killed by the intruder. He was killed. His estrangement from his wife is not psychological. It's real. It's spiritual. He, he is dead, and she's alive. And this plot twist, of course, is a complete surprise to the viewer, but if you then re-watch the film from the very beginning, it makes complete sense that he's dead, because you discover, as you watch it, that his wife never actually looks at him or interacts with him. No one actually talks to him, him except for the young boy, so that once you know the ending, you can't help but watch the entire film in a completely different light because of that ending. Now, on the one hand, the story of Jesus is the exact opposite of the sixth sense, and at least for starters, because when you get to the end of the Gospels, Jesus isn't dead, he's alive. But there is one way in which the story is similar, and it's this, that once you come to the end of the account of Jesus' life, if you then go back through the first part of the biblical story, namely the, the Old Testament Scriptures, you can't but help read them in light of that ending, seeing new things, gleaning new insights. And if there's one Old Testament book that gives us more additional insights than any other book of the Old Testament, indeed insights that actually add to the portrayal of Jesus than we get in the New Testament, it's the book of Isaiah. So through the season of Lent, we're going to be spending time in the last section of the book of Isaiah in a sermon series entitled, Jesus Through Isaiah's Eyes. Now, just as a little sidebar here, and this is certainly not my main aim this morning, but if a few of you become convinced by the end of the sermon that this prophet's name should be pronounced Isaiah instead of Isaiah, then I've probably got a little bonus today in what I'm seeking to achieve. But regardless of however you want to pronounce this prophet's name, the truth for all of us is that the New Testament quotes Isaiah more than all the other Old Testament prophets combined, and that as you read through the Gospels, it becomes clear that Jesus Himself read Isaiah, He meditated on Isaiah, and He understood His ministry in light of Isaiah. But what's important for us also to see, and this is really the focus of this sermon series, is that not only did Jesus look back down the centuries to learn from Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah also looked forward to see the coming of Jesus. And in fact, as we'll see through this series, Isaiah, which is actually often referred to as the, the fifth gospel, tells us things about the coming Jesus Messiah that the gospels don't even themselves explicitly tell us. And that's particularly true of what are called the servant songs in Isaiah, which provide, provide these amazing portraits of the coming promised Messiah who is not only God's anointed king, which is what Messiah means, but he's the king who will come 
as a servant. So this morning we're going to look at the first of those servant songs, which comes in Isaiah 42. And through that song, I want us to see three things about the servant this morning. First of all, we want to see the mission of the servant. Secondly, we want to see the manner of the servant. And thirdly, we want to see the means of the servant. But before we do that, I want to read the passage to you. You'll find this on page 602 in your pew Bibles, also on page 10 of your order of worship. Here now, the Word of God. Isaiah 42, 1-9. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from them, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name, my glory. I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them." This is the word of the Lord. It's trustworthy, and it's true, and it's given to us in love. Pray with me. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be found acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. First then, let's think about the the mission of this servant. Look again at how this song begins in verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. God is the speaker here, but what's worth pointing out is that this behold statement is the third in a series of three behold statements. The first two of them come towards the very end of the previous chapter, chapter 41. And if you have a Bible open in front of you, it might be helpful to look at these as I read them to you. The first of them comes in Isaiah 41, verse 24. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. And then we have the second behold that comes in the very last verse of the chapter, chapter 41, verse 29. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Now, what's important to see here is that the you in verse 24 and the they in verse 29 are referring to idols. And the context here in chapter 41 is that Israel has been sent by God into exile in Babylon because of her rebellion, because of her sin, because of her idolatry. However, God has also promised that He's going to rescue His people from exile, and that the initial fulfillment of that rescue would involve God raising up a fearsome king from the north who would come and defeat the Babylonians. Well, God, God reveals to the Israelites this is what's going to happen, but rather than seeing this fearsome king as a deliverer, everyone gets afraid. And so what do they decide to do? They decide, having failed to learn from their foolish past, that they will build more idols. And they think these idols are the solution to their problem, that the idols will rescue them, they'll keep them safe. So in the middle of chapter 41, Isaiah describes this courtroom scene 
where God summons the idol makers of the day to bring their idols to the dock so that everyone can, in a sense, hear their testimony. And I think we're supposed to understand there's a definite comical side to, to this whole thing because Isaiah is intentionally mocking the idols and the idol makers here. So he says, come on, come along, bring your idols in, i.e., you know, wheel them in because we know they're not going to get in here by themselves, are they? And then God challenges the idols to interpret history like he, as He can do and to predict the future like He can do, which of course is met with complete silence. And then in verse 23, God, it's almost as if God says, okay, okay, I'm sorry, I, I set the bar too high there, obviously. Let me bring the bar down a little bit. Can you, can you do something? Can you do anything? Of which I think we're supposed to understand there's another pregnant, awkward pause and silence before verse 24 when God says, behold, you idols are nothing and your works are less than nothing. Now, I mention all this for two reasons. First of all, you and I will better understand the significance of chapter 42 once we have a sense of this wider context. But secondly, this context immediately reveals the relevance of this passage to all of us. Now, we all like to think that we're a little more sophisticated than Isaiah's audience here. We don't believe in all that superstitious stuff. Most of us don't have little statues propped up in the corner of our apartments, uh, which we're trusting in for our well-being, our safety, our security. But idolatry in Isaiah, as well as in the entire Bible, is never just about statues. An idol in the Bible is any heart-level substitute for God. It's anything other than God that we look to for our meaning, for our significance, for our safety, for our security, whether that's physical idols as it was for Isaiah's audience or more likely for us, whether that's financial wealth or a relationship or a political party or our health or a job. And if you haven't identified what the dominant idols in your life are, well, that's simply because you haven't looked hard enough. Because as the reformer John Calvin put it, the human heart is a perpetual idol-making factory. We're very good at this. But whatever your dominant idols might be, Isaiah's verdict would be the exact same for us as it is here. He says they're nothings. In fact, they're worse than nothings, which means in the end, all our idols always fail us. They always let us down, and they let us down in particular in two ways. First of all, they never keep their promises. Your idols promise you the world, and they never come through. And secondly, they never forgive you when you fail them. They're ruthless that way every single time. And so Isaiah is saying to us, behold, just take a look at your idols for a moment and realize they're less than nothing. So all of that sets us up then for this first verse in Isaiah 42. Look at it again. This time we'll look at the entire verse. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So after two beholds of despair, here is this glorious behold of hope. After pointing our attention to these want-to-be deities, these pretend gods, now God says, I want to show you the real deal. Behold my servant. Everything they can't do, he can. Everything they're not, he is. And the language of God's servant would not have been unfamiliar to Isaiah's audience. If you go back through the Old Testament, You'll find that people like Moses and David, even Isaiah, the prophet here, are referred to as God's servant. 
In the chapter before this one, chapter 41, God actually refers to the entire people of Israel as His servant. But as, as we are about to see in chapter 42, something clearly has shifted here. For one thing, there, there just seems to be an intimacy here between God and His servant. He refers to Him not only as His chosen, but as the one in whom He delights. And in hindsight, of course, we know why that is, because this is not only God's servant, this is God's Son. This is Jesus. And God then announces that He's put His Spirit upon His servant, and then, and, and then here's the bombshell. God says, my servant will bring forth justice to the nations. And this justice for the entire world is central here to the servant's mission. You'll see it's mentioned in verse 1. It's mentioned again in verse 3. It's mentioned again in verse 4, that the remit of the servant is in no way just parochial. It's not limited just to Judah or to Israel, or even if we push the boundaries out a little bit to the superpowers of the day of Assyria and Babylon. No, this servant is tasked with bringing about a change in the entire world order to usher in a new regime with new regulations under a new king, who it turns out is going to be the servant himself. The mission of the servant is justice for all the nations. Now, justice is one of those words in our cultural, uh, current cultural climate that can be defined differently by different people depending on sort of their wider worldview perspective. But getting to the heart of the meaning of this word in the Bible is also a bit of a challenge. Indeed, there's a debate amongst commentators about whether God here is referring to what we might call retributive justice, where God will sentence wrongdoers for their crimes, sentence them to punishment, or whether He's speaking here more of a restorative justice, whereby the servant will put right all wrongs. He will turn right side up what has been upside down. But I don't think we need to try to decide if it's an either or here, because it seems to be a both and. The earlier context, as we've already seen, is indeed a, a courtroom where God is judging the idols and the idol makers of the day and ultimately placing them under a verdict of, of condemnation and retributive justice. But justice in the Bible is always something much bigger than merely justice in the law courts. And the reason for that is that human justice can never adequately right the things that are wrong. Human justice can never undo the past. A legal system can never legislate for the transformation of life. The law has the authority to punish. It even has the power to declare someone innocent, but it is powerless to transform the human heart. But the good news is that the justice that the servant will bring to the nations is something much bigger than trying to be merely retributive that the servant isn't coming here just to try to be this all-powerful lawyer or policeman applying the letter of the law. He's come to take the things in this world that are broken and deranged and faulty and by His power to transform them to what they were created and intended to be by God. Now, if we think about this, I think this is deep down what we really want. By way of illustration, imagine, imagine that you own an expensive painting in your apartment. In fact, I'm sure for some of you, you don't have to imagine it. You have an expensive painting in your apartment, and, and, and while you're at work one day, someone breaks into your apartment and steals the painting. You come home, you're absolutely distraught because it's not only worth a lot of money, but you, this, this was one of your favorite paintings. So, you, you get the police involved. A couple of days later, a policewoman comes by and says, I have good news for you. And you say, oh, good. 
it's, it's to do with my painting, right? And she says, yes, we've caught the thief who stole your painting, and we're going to pursue justice to its limit and, and make sure this criminal is punished. But that's really not your main concern at all, is it? So you say to the policeman, well, that's all very well, I appreciate it, but frankly, what about my painting? And the policewoman responds, I'm, I'm really very sorry, but there doesn't seem to be anything that we can do about your painting, but we did catch the criminal. And you say, I don't really care about the criminal anymore. What I really want is my painting back. And in something of a parallel to that story, God's painting, His creation and everything in it, and the pinnacle of that creation, which is us, has been stolen and it's been defaced, and God wants it back so that when He promises that His servant is going to achieve justice, He's not saying that His servant is merely coming to catch the criminal who did this. No, He's saying, I'm sending my servant to to bring back the painting, to restore life to the way it's meant to be. Any of you, I'm sure, will remember um, the line in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, where until Aslan the lion, the Christ figure, can come to Narnia, it's always winter, but never Christmas. Well, listen to how Mr. Beaver described the transformation that would come with Aslan's arrival. He says, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. The sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more when he bears his teeth Winter meets his death, and when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. And Isaiah here gives us his own little picture in verses 6 to 7 of this transformed reality that will come as a result of the servant's mission. Here, as he speaks, he's, he's quoting God, speaking not about the servant anymore, but to the servant in verses uh, 6 and 7. Look with me. Again, God speaking to the servant. He says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And that's what we're really longing for, isn't it? I mean, here's this promise to all of us who might feel stuck in the darkness of our self-created dungeons, who wonder whether we can ever actually change from the people that we seem to be, or are we stuck in this bleak reality forever? And God promises here through His servant that He's absolutely committed to deliver us from the darkness of our idolatries, to open our eyes to His glory and the beauty, and to bring us all the way out into the light. All of which is to say that is that this servant's justice is way more than merely retributive. It is marvelously restorative, transforming the world into the way God intended it to be. Here is what will be achieved through the mission of the servant. So this global mission of the servant is so huge, it's so ambitious that we might figure, well, this is only going to be achieved by some sort of superpower, some, some king who has all sorts of power and authority where everybody just does what he says, whether they like it or they like him or not. And if that's what we are thinking, when we come to our second point, the manner of the servant, well, this is where our jaws drop. Look at what we read next in verses 2 and 3. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. I wonder if you noticed here how every clause except the final one 
is expressed in the negative. The description of the servant's manner tells us not what he will do, but what he won't do. And that might seem strange to us, but it's just a, a, a rhetorical literary device where we state a positive as a negative in order to emphasize the positive. And that's what's happening here, is to emphasize the unparalleled humility and mercy and compassion and gentleness of this servant. And Isaiah introduces the manner of the servant by telling us that he's not in the business of attention-seeking. He's not out to make a big hullabaloo. He isn't an extroverted loudmouth. He's not a self-promoter. Rather, the servant is the epitome of humility. But it's the next part of the description that is particularly astonishing. Let me read it to you again. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. I wonder if you can imagine back to when you were a child and what you would have done if you had come across such things. I think I remember what I would have done. Bruised reed, you shall become a broken reed in my hand. And dimly burning wick, I can easily snuff you out. And why would we do that? Well, because we could. I mean, as children, or, or maybe this is just a boy thing, or maybe it's just me and I just need to own my stuff and not project onto you. But I think for some of us, when we were children, we were prone to exhibit any display of strength or mastery that we could as we were just discovering ourselves in the world that we live in. But how different that is to how Jesus displays His mastery here. A bruised reed He will not break, and a faintly burning wick He will not quench. The word bruised here might not even be the best translation. Literally, the word means crushed. And just in case, case you're wondering, let me make it clear. God intends for us to see ourselves being described here. We're supposed to see ourselves as the bruised or crushed reed and as the faintly burning wick. And maybe you're not feeling that today. Maybe you've had a good week. Maybe you're feeling kind of on top of the world right now. But I guarantee you amongst all of us here today, there are some of us who know exactly what God is talking about here, about being bruised reeds or faintly burning wicks. And it comes from the injustice in this world that at different times and in different ways, every single one of us experiences because life, frankly, is not fair. And it comes from unspeakable losses in our lives, Losses that may be from years ago or may be as recent as weeks or months in the, in, in the, just in this year, but losses that we never quite get over. Or it may come from foolish mistakes and sinful choices that we've made in the past, the consequences of which just continue to crush us to this very day. And as a result of all those things, we feel on the inside like we're just sort of dying, that the flame is close to, to flickering out. And then God says, as part of His gargantuan mission to bring justice to the world, this servant is committed to healing your crushed reed so that it can produce grain again, and to gently blowing to rekindle your flame. I was talking to a fairly new pastor friend of mine on Friday who lives on the West Coast, and uh, it came up that I was preaching on this passage this weekend, and he told me that he and his wife named their son Reed because of this passage. And I thought to myself, how beautiful that is, that this stunning promise of verse 3 would be bound up in their son's name for his lifetime. But you don't have to be called Reed for this promise to apply to you, because this promise applies to all of us, because Jesus 
is saying, I love the fragile. I'm attracted to the faltering. I come to the spiritually broken, to those of you who are so bruised by your sin and the effects of that sin that you're literally unable to stand up under it. And I promise I want to mend you. English Puritan pastor Richard Sibbs, 1630, published a book which I highly recommend to you, almost 400 years old, but I guarantee it will encourage you. Entitled, the book was entitled, The Bruised Read, based a whole book on this verse. And in that book, he writes this, are you bruised? Be of good comfort, he calls you. Conceal not your wounds. Open all before him and go to Christ. There is more mercy in him than sin in you. Or as we sang earlier, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Just before we go to our final point then, let me with all due respect invite any of you here who are still holding back from holding, handing over full control of your life to Jesus, just to consider for a moment again this description of Him and to ask yourself, why would I ever not want to hand over the reins of my life to this person? I mean, just listen to these verses one more time, two to three. He will not cry aloud or lift up His voice or make it heard in the street, a bruised reed He will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Do you see how non-self-assertive he is here? Do you see how on your side he is? I mean, you may be clinging on so hard to one of those idols that I mentioned earlier in the service that it's just, it's even preventing you from seeing how Jesus offers you everything that those idols can't and don't. So that you, you can't even see how Jesus is never dismissive of you. However broken or useless or past your cell by date you feel like, that Jesus loves to mend broken people. I'm guessing amongst us all here today, there are some of us who do a, a fairly good job of conveying to our friends and to our co workers and to others that we're strong, we're confident, we have it all together. But inside, we know that we are wretchedly broken. Well, let me introduce you one more time to this Jesus. He's the exact combination we need in a Savior. He's someone strong enough to save us. He's gentle enough to want to save us and to embrace us in our weakness and our frailty and our failure and our sin. That's the beautiful, loving manner of this servant. Which brings us then, lastly, to the means of the servant. The servant's mission there is, is huge. It's to bring justice to the nations. However, the manner of this servant is meekness, it's gentleness, it's compassion. By normal standards, those don't appear to be the traits needed to restore the world to the way it's meant to be. So how then is Jesus going to bring this transformation and restoration about? Well, we get a glimpse of how He's going to do it in verse 4. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Stunningly, the servant will achieve his mission of restorative justice through suffering. Now, you'll, you'll need to look with me uh, a little carefully at verses 3 and 4 to see, see how this plays out, because there's an intentional repetition of words that are used in verse 3 that, are, that appear in verse 4. And the first of them is clear. It's the, word, it's the word faint. He will not grow faint is the same Hebrew word as is used for the faintly 
burning wick. But the second is less obvious, but it's the word discouraged, because discouraged is actually the exact same Hebrew word as the word bruised in verse 3. So, if we were to read verse 4 a little more literally, the first part would read, he will not grow faint or be bruised till he has established justice in the earth. Now, the question is, why would the same words be used in verse 4 as in verse 3? And here's why. Because God is telling us that His servant would not be achieving His mission of justice for the world from a safe and removed, comfortable, distant place from this world, but that He was going to come right into the thick of our human experience. He would be coming into this world with all its pain. These things that bruise and quench us, the servant was going to experience as well. He would find himself subject to the same pressures which make us burn low, but he would not burn low. He would make it face the same severe hardships that bruise us, but he would not bruise. He endured the same sufferings as we do. In fact, he would, he would endure far more sufferings, far greater sufferings than we could ever imagine. But Isaiah's point here is that the pressures and the blows and the temptations that knock us out for the count could not and did not deter him. That the servant sent by the Father, anointed by the Spirit, had the inner resources to not falter, had the resilience to persevere. And of course, that is what's borne out in the Gospels. That Jesus, the suffering servant, is killed. He's executed on a cross, but while he physically died, he did not falter because three days later, he rises from the dead, the servant who is the king, defeating sin and defeating death and ushering in the first fruits of this justice that he will one day perfectly establish when he returns for the new heavens and the new earth. And indeed, through his death and his resurrection, he takes the penalty of the retributive justice that you and I deserve for all our idolatries. But now, as the ascended king, he is working through his spirit in us towards that day when perfect justice, or as the Old Testament sometimes calls it, when shalom shall be restored in all its beauty. It's the means of the servant. You know, this certainly doesn't happen with every Old Testament passage, but when it comes to Isaiah 42, the gospel writers, and particularly the gospel writer Matthew, wanted to make sure that we would see the connection between uh, what we've just read and the person and work of Jesus. And so, for example, at both Jesus' baptism and at His transfiguration, you'll read that a voice comes down from heaven, the voice of God the Father, and the voice declares, this is my Son whom I love, with Him I am well pleased. And those words from the Father about the Son actually are a combination of two Old Testament verses. It's a combination of Psalm 2 verse 7 and Isaiah 42 verse 1. God was declaring, yes, this Son is my servant portrayed in Isaiah 42 and my King, my anointed King portrayed in Psalm 2 verse 7. He's the servant King. But then get this, almost halfway between Matthew's account of the baptism of Jesus and the transfiguration of Jesus, in chapter 12 of Matthew, Matthew records that after Jesus had been healing on the Sabbath, the Pharisees have had it up to here, and they are conspiring to execute Jesus. They're, they're out to kill Him. 
And Jesus, we're told by Matthew, withdraws from that place in order to avoid premature arrest, premature execution, because he knows that his time has not yet come, but he continues to heal people, heals everybody that comes to him, we're told, but tells them not to say anything about it. And then to explain what was going on there, Matthew quotes the first part of our passage. He quotes the entire verses, verses 1 to 4 from Isaiah 42. It's the longest Old Testament quotation in the Gospel of Matthew. And he does that because, as one commentator puts it, it serves as this mid-gospel review of Jesus' whole mission. I really like that. It's this mid-gospel review of Jesus' whole mission because Jesus doesn't fit the mold. People don't expect messiahs to retreat. They expect them to advance. They don't expect messiahs to seek to be hidden. They expect them to be known. But Jesus' commitment in Matthew 12 to silence and to gentleness and to compassion was this indication of the true focus of His mission, a mission to bring perfect justice to the nations, which would require Him at just the right time to be crucified and to rise again. In other words, Matthew says that if you really want to know who Jesus is, and if you really want to know what Jesus' mission was all about, you can do a lot, lot worse than reading Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the sending of your Son, the servant King, the one who came into this world to do for us what we could not do, but the one who has such great plans for us and for this world, where he will bring true and perfect justice to the nations. But what a beautiful way that He will do it, coming as He did in the manner that He did, and coming to achieve it through His own suffering and death. We thank You and praise You for Him and for this beautiful portrayal given to us from Your prophet Isaiah. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.